This week, we're going to dive into what is known as the poverty gospel, and that's not a spelling error, the poverty gospel. Um, And I suspect that this is a bit less familiar to you, because unlike the prosperity gospel, the poverty gospel doesn't really have any major or popular preachers or teachers. It's less popular. But the teachings are still very prevalent and dominant today. And this is worth untangling because the poverty gospel could very easily be misunderstood as the Bible's teaching on money and wealth. It's more easily misunderstood because it's a lot more humble in its claims. It's a lot more uh, less extravagant in its lifestyle. And the heart of the teaching is this. Maybe you have heard it or seen it play out in churches before. It's in your outlines. It says this, the poorer you are, the holier you are. The poorer you are, the holier you are. You see, the prosperity gospel teaches that the wealthier you are, then the more blessed, the more favored, the more godlier you are. But what the poverty gospel teaches is that the poor you are, then you must be doing something right. You must be holier than the person next to you, more godly than the person next to you, more blessed than the person next to you. And you know what? At face value, this seems so right in so many ways, right? We can think of really godly Christians we look up to, missionaries that we admire, maybe even historical figures that we've read about, and perhaps one of the consistent virtues that they display is poverty or simplicity. Uh, George Mueller Hudson Taylor, Mother Teresa, they all stand in stark contrast to wealthy Christians. And it's very easy for us to say, oh, wow, those people, they are the epitome of godliness. But church, you see, if the prosperity gospel promises too little, then the poverty gospel actually promises too much. Because you see, it gives us the impression that your godliness, your holiness, your right standing before God and people can be earned through your poverty. It gives poverty a sort of power to save that it was never meant to have. But you see, it's very easy to arrive at this sort of conclusion when we read the Bible. And that's what we're going to explore under point one. And as we work our way through the various passages and themes, I hope we realize that God's blessings cannot be bought. They are all a gift of grace. God's blessings cannot be bought. They are all a gift of grace. Let's start at point one. And I want us to notice how the teachings of of the poverty gospel is surprisingly subtle. It's really easy for us to read the Bible and think, ah, so the Bible teaches that the poorer you are, the holier you are, right? How is that so? Well, as you look at point 1a, We see this firstly from the basic warnings from the Bible about wealth. Uh, Let me give you some uh, warning passages. We we talked about some in week one, but I want to give you some particularly pointed one. The first comes from Matthew 6, verse 24, and I believe this should come up on the screens. But I also want to encourage you to open up your Bibles because we're going to try to read this in context in a moment, right? But Matthew 6, verse 24, very simply says this, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I'm sure you're familiar with a passage like this. You can blink a thousand times and you will not miss what this verse is teaching. 
money can be an idol that we love and serve. And this passage offers an extremely clear warning that wealth can jeopardize our faith in Jesus. So a conclusion we could draw from a passage like this is say, okay, well, if there is a risk for money to be our master, then perhaps the best thing to do is to not have money. Makes sense, doesn't it? Let me give you another one. Luke 18, verse 25, also on the screens. It says, indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for some who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Here's a very interesting question. How do you fit a camel, the animal, through the eye of a needle? That's what an eye of a needle looks like, zoomed up a thousand times, right? How do you do that? Uh, The answer is you can't. And that's the point of Luke 18, verse 25. Just as it is impossible to fit a camel through the eye of a needle, so too it is impossible for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. So we can read that and we may therefore think, well, if it's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, then maybe the answer is to be a poor person, right? Here's one more. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. It says this. There it is. I forgot to change the picture. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, just realize that here there is a compounding effect to the Bible's teaching, right? So first of all, it's either God or money. Second of all, rich people that enter the kingdom of heaven. And now thirdly, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. They cause you to wander from the faith. It pierces you with many griefs. What are we supposed to conclude from these passages? It seems simple, right? Money and wealth are bad. And then to add to the impression that the Bible teaches the poverty gospel, we see plenty of scriptural passages. Thank you. We see plenty of scriptural passages that seem to positively affirm poverty. Look at point 1B and let's turn our eyes away from the screen for just a moment. Um, We're having a couple of tech issues today and that's fine. Uh, Matthew chapter 5 verse 3. Uh, These are also in your outlines, the references. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3 says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so if Luke 18, verse 25 says, it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven, now Matthew 5, verse 3 says, the poor will inherit the kingdom of heaven instead. Doesn't that just tell us that poverty is better? Uh, Luke 4, verses 18 to 19 The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus here in Luke 4, verse 18 and 19 is reading a quote from Isaiah 61. This is the prophet Isaiah who's been called to proclaim the good news, but to who? It says the poor. And Luke 4, verse 20 to 21, Jesus rolls up the scroll and says, the scripture is fulfilled today. In other words, Jesus is reinforcing Isaiah's teaching. Apparently, the good news is not to the rich, but to the poor. And all of this is perfectly summarized in James chapter 2, verse 5, which says this, Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, 
Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? It's really easy to read this verse and like every other verse conclude that poverty in the Christian life is preferred. Because then God will make us rich in the faith. God will allow us to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And so it's very unsurprising. We find pastors preaching on this topic and their sound bites get turned into scripture. As you look at point 1C, um, you see a couple of names there. And before we dive into that, I want to make it unequivocally clear that I do not believe that uh, teachers like John Piper and David Platt teach the poverty gospel at all. I want to say they do not teach that. They are correcting a sort of rampant materialism and consumerism that is common in Western cultures like ours. So much of what they say is helpful and needed. But if you isolate their strong sound bites, then you can certainly think that they are teaching the poverty gospel. Let's see if the PowerPoint works, right? Because, for example, John Piper in a sermon called Money, Sex, and Power says this unequivocally. Is it going to work? Otherwise, I have to read it and act it out. Next one. There we go. I don't have to act it out. He says this, money is dangerous. Money itself is dangerous because of how quickly and easily it deceives us. Unsurprisingly, I want you to look at the footnote for just a moment. The full title of the sermon is Money, Sex, and Power, The Dangers and How to Avoid Them. It seems like money is so bad that the only right and proper Christian response is avoidance. Flee from it. Oh, hear this from David Platt. Next slide. He says, Jesus is better than money. He is better than more things, than nicer, newer clothes, than bigger, better possessions. Jesus is better. Believe this. And now, of course, none of us will deny what Piper and Platt are saying, right? Point 1A and B. The Bible's teaching seems clear. Money is dangerous. Jesus is better than money. But you see, when we're tasked with the what then question, if we believe all this without examining the rest of Scripture, we ask what then, it seems like the best and only option is actually just to be poor. Unsurprisingly, this is actually a position of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, they call this a vow of poverty. It's a vow or promise that any Catholic can take, and it's a conscious and constant renunciation of temporal goods, including wealth, to follow Jesus. Many Roman Catholic priests take a vow of poverty. They own nothing at all. They live off the generosity of the church. It, it seems logical, right? If money and wealth are bad, if poverty is good, then why wouldn't you forsake it all, make a vow of simplicity, and live poorly. Here's what a Roman Catholic bishop says. Poverty preaches to a world wrapped up in wealth. Now, it's really hard to deny that our world is obsessed with wealth, right? Look around us. And so perhaps the way of Jesus really is this, poverty. And so negatively, it seems like the Bible is really anti-money, anti-wealth. Positively, it seems like the Bible is really pro-poverty. And if major preachers and teachers seem to reinforce this, then isn't this a closed case? The Bible teaches the poverty gospel. The poorer you are, the holier you are. But as you come to point two with me, I want you to see how these readings and interpretations are actually very slippery readings. 
Because it's entirely possible to take truths in Scripture, isolate them to the exclusion of others, and then construct a position that becomes the lens through which you read Scripture so that everything else reaffirms that position. It's possible to do that. But I want to show us a bit of corrective. For example, does Matthew 6 verse 24 teach that you cannot serve two masters? Absolutely. Turn there with me, Matthew 6 verse 24. Because as you turn to your Bibles, I want you to see that this warning here is given in the context of worry. Matthew 6 verse 25, 34 actually expands on what verse 24 teaches, right? So for example, straight after Matthew 6 verse 24, Matthew then says, right? After saying you cannot serve two master, Matthew says, do not worry about life. What you will eat, drink, or wear, the birds of the sky don't worry. Why? Because God looks after them. You see, Matthew 6 verse 24 is not quite saying money is bad. It's saying this, hey, you've got a master who loves you. He cares for you. He is not withholding anything from you. All the material things of this earth you worry about, you lose sleep over, God knows. He knows what you need. And so you can seek first the kingdom and righteousness because you have a God, a master who cares and so love God. Devote yourself to God. Serve God. Completely depend on Him. He will look after you. That's the context about worrying. The passage is not saying, so throw away all your things, give all your money away, stop working. It's saying you don't have to worry about them. God will do that for you. God will provide. Uh, Thus Luke 18 verse 25, right? Say it is impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? Absolutely. No doubt. But does that therefore mean it is possible or is it easy for a poor person to enter in? Read what Luke 18, verse 26 to 27 says, right? So Jesus teaches this. And in verse 26, those who heard this say, who then can be saved? That's a good question, right? And Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. The warning here is actually worship. The point is this, it is impossible for man, men and women, rich or poor, to attain salvation on their own. But all who worship God can be saved. Because remember, the context of this saying here is the rich young ruler. He did everything right. And so Jesus says, sell all you have, give to the poor. And the passage tells us the young man left because he had a lot of wealth. Do you see, the point here is that this rich young ruler was worshipping his money. That's why it was impossible for him to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not because he was rich, but because he was worshipping something other than God. That money and wealth was a magnifying glass showing the worship of his heart. And so the solution for him was not to become poor. The solution of him is to worship God instead. And so here, giving up that wealth was meant to be an act of trust in the God who provides. Becoming poor was not going to be the mechanism to save him. Does 1 Timothy 6 verse 10 teach that money can lead to evils? Absolutely. 
But if you turn to uh, 1 Timothy 6 for just a moment, I want you to notice that the passage says here, it's the love of money. In other words, it's the worship of money. That's why if you read the next verse, 1 Timothy 6 verse 11, it says we are therefore to pursue God instead. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. These are the things that the Holy Spirit produces within us. That's really fascinating, isn't it? The next verse doesn't say pursue poverty. (laughs) Instead, it says let go of your worship of money and worship God instead. These verses are actually saying something really simple. It's not about money or the lack thereof. It's about what you worry about and it's about what you worship. The answer to your confidence in money is not to become poor. The answer to your confidence in money is dependence upon God instead. So what then do we do about the passages that positively affirm poverty? There are lots of those, right? Well, you see, if we pay really close attention, what we'll realize is that these passages are actually speaking primarily about spiritual poverty. Spiritual poverty. Now, I don't want to take the easy way out and say this is only about spiritual poverty. No, the passage is also dealing with material financial poverty. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want us to realize that the fundamental issue that our passages are addressing is, in fact, spiritual poverty. That is, people who have nothing spiritually or people who are empty spiritually. You see, a person who is poor in spirit is a person who knows their utter inability to save themselves. The poor in spirit are those who are humble because they are acutely aware of their own sin. The poor in spirit are those who are dependent upon God because they know that He is their only hope. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Jesus says, The poor in spirit, the people who know that they cannot save themselves, the people who are humble, the people who are dependent upon God, they will inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they know that God is their only hope, and so they turn to Him. Now you see, the inescapable reality though is that those who are financially poor are sometimes also those who are spiritually poor. And this here, this connection is actually one that the Bible reinforces. And that's also what we see in our world, right? When you take a step back, when you think about it, the places where Christianity is growing the most are in developing countries. Why? Because they do not have the material comforts to shield them from the harsh realities of life. They do not have much. They do not live under the illusion of self-sufficiency. And so the promises of God, the greater inheritance that is for you in Christ, shines like a bright light of hope in their dark condition. That's why Luke 4 verse 18 says, The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Why? Because they know they need it. That's why James 2 verse 5 says the poor will be rich in faith because their honest condition means that they are more likely to turn to God for hope. Likewise, the places where Christianity is is experiencing a decline is actually developed countries. Why? 
because our material wealth can very easily give us the illusion that we're already in heaven. Like, what heaven? If we go to certain suburbs where there are a lot of wealthy people and you tell them about heaven, they sip their wine on their yachts and say, I'm already here. That life on earth is already perfect. And that's the danger, isn't it? That's why these warning passages are there in Scripture. It is so easy to see money as the solution to all of your problems, to see money as the savior of your pains. I certainly believed this when I was growing up, right? If I just had more money, then I would have less problems. That being said, though, I want to make the point that here, money is actually not the fundamental problem. It's not whether you're rich or poor. Because the truth is, you can be financially poor and still spiritually proud and resist God. You could also be financially rich, but still humbly admit your need for God. That's why the point here is this. The question is dependence. Who are you depending on? Who are you worshiping? Because anything or anyone other than the God of the Bible will always disappoint you. And this is what we realize. Poverty in the Bible is actually pointing us to grace. It reinforces the very simple message that none of us can earn our way into the kingdom of God. None of us can buy our way into God's favor. None of us can bribe our way into the new creation. It is all God's work of grace and mercy. So the poverty gospel will have us think we can earn God's favor just through our poverty, but they've missed the point. The point is this. The only way to be saved is by God's grace alone. By trusting in Jesus alone as the one who died for your sin and is raised to give you new life. By believing he's coming back again and making all things right. By anchoring on his promise that he's given life and life to the full. Uh, 2 Corinthians 8 verses 1 to 9 was beautifully read out to us earlier, right? This passage is about how the church in Corinth being exceedingly generous with their wealth, right? Just stunning. But why? Not because they felt like giving their money away would make them more approved by God. Their motivation is seen in verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Their motivation was the grace of God. That's the good news. Not that our material poverty will make us spiritually rich, but that God's grace makes us spiritually rich in Christ. And so church, nuance is necessary, right? Because if you listen to Piper and Platt's sermons carefully and charitably, then again, you will know that they are not teaching that you can be right with God by being poor. These sound bites can be very easily mistaken as the poverty gospel. But you know, I think that there is a part of us, part of the reason why this grips our hearts is that we are strangely and weirdly drawn to it. That's why we find it very easy to believe. Because you see, as fallen human beings, we are all naturally inclined towards earning our salvation with God. The Bible tells us our default position is works righteousness. 
And the poverty gospel, the idea that giving up my wealth means I can be accepted by God, that act, in a very weird way, helps me have a sense of control. It feeds my pride because it seems like God now owes me. Because God, look at how much I've given to you. But I hope you see any attempt to earn our salvation is foolish. It can never be done. With man, it is impossible, right? Any attempt to control God is labor done in vain. You know, church, if the God you worship is a God you can control, then you are not worshiping God. You are worshiping yourself. Any attempt to get God to owe us is just crazy, right? What could the God of the universe who gave us life, why could he possibly owe us? A God who could be indebted to your sacrifices is no God at all. So we need to constantly examine these key biblical passages with an eye to context and with a desire for details and nuance. And when we do, we arrive at a very simple conclusion. God's blessings cannot be bought. They are all a gift of grace. And church, this is what we need, right? Blessings that can never be taken even in seasons of plenty or in want. Blessings that are not dependent on how much we sacrifice or give up to God. Isn't that why so many people are so filled with guilt? Like Maybe I just haven't given God enough. Will God approve me if I give him enough? That's a burden and yoke that you were never meant to design to carry. The gospel promises blessings that is purely bestowed because God loves us. Because God is gracious to us. Because God is good to us. So then last week we saw that since the prosperity gospel is incorrect, it's actually right to sow, that is to work for our money. To not just blindly believe that God will give and he will give us more, no, but to work industriously, to work with integrity, to work with an eye for impact. We recognize all things being equal, financial remuneration often accompanies this sort of work. Last week we also talked about serving, right? Our giving is not to get more. Our giving is out of love for God and for those around us. Today, since the poverty gospel is incorrect, I'd like us to see it is therefore right to save and it is therefore right for us to spend. The poverty gospel may have us believe that unless we give everything away, then we are not being godly. But actually, the Bible teaches that saving our money is actually a form of wise stewardship. At the same time, it is right to spend our money on things. We don't have to give it all away. We need to be careful, but we don't have to give it all away for God to delight in us. Come to point three, the simplicity of the Bible's teaching. Now, saving is a really interesting topic. If you are a strong saver, my suspicion is that you do this because of your upbringing, either by positive example or negative example. So perhaps your parents taught you from a very young age, right? Whenever you get money, pay yourself first. In other words, put money aside. My parents uh, bought me my first piggy bank when I was three years old, and I was taught to put coins in it and save it for a rainy day, right? Or maybe you grew up in an environment where your family lived paycheck to paycheck struggling and you've watched that and growing up you think man wouldn't it be great to never have to be anxious if an emergency came up i want us to see that saving isn't just a really good practice it's actually biblical by description and prescription 
Now, by description, I mean that the Bible describes saving in a very vivid way and commends it as really good practice. The clearest description and celebration of saving is found in Genesis 41, verses 34 to 36. These verses are set within the context of the story of the Exodus, one of the greatest redemption stories in the Bible. Right? Up to this point, Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream and told him a famine is going to come across the land of Egypt. A famine is coming. In response, Pharaoh takes a fifth of the harvest over the next seven years and saves it up. He stores it up so that in the seven years of famine, there, when there is no food, they could dig into the bank that they have stored up over the seven years of abundance. Now, if you know the story of the Exodus, you will know that this act of saving protected Egypt from the famine. But this act of saving was also a major turning point in the story of the Exodus because this protected Joseph's family and saved the Israelites, God's people, from starvation and famine. It brought them into Egypt. And so unsurprisingly, passages like Proverbs 6, verses 6 to 11, commends saving. It uses an ant as an expression, right? If, wants, if ever someone calls you an ant, that's actually a compliment because the Bible speaks positively about it. Proverbs 6, right? They work hard. They store up provisions during harvest so that they have enough during times of need. The basic principle of saving is this, putting money aside for future use. The Bible teaches this. But church, to save, I want to encourage us to consider three things. And this is for everyone in the room, right? Uh, the first is to plan, right? Proverbs 21 verse 5, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. So if your way of saving is to take all your income, spend your money first, then save whatever is left over, then either you will not spend wisely or you will not save wisely. It is wiser to have a plan or maybe even a target. This is really important, especially as we start looking at um, how all of these five categories come together next week. Because I know so well, right, that in cultures like ours, it is very easy for us, for our savings to be our God. So we look at the poverty gospel and we go, okay, it is not right to spend on extravagant things. Luxury is bad. And so we criticize people who do that. We say, that's greedy, but our hearts are just the same. It's just that we're not spending, we're saving instead. And so we end up having this kind of moral high ground, judging those who spend on luxury, and really, our hearts are just the same. We bank our security on our savings and on our money. But don't you see, if we take a step back and we recognize there's a way to plan for all of these things, we can be intentional. We can be very strategic. We can be very gospel-minded, right? We need to have a plan, a target, right? Now, if you don't have the practice of saving, having a plan is going to be critical, right? So, for example, financial experts suggest, right, having three months of expenses saved in an emergency fund. Now, I'm not sure what you think about that. You may feel like, oh, that's not a lot. That's too much. Right? ComBank research shows one in two Australians do not have three months of expenses saved up for emergency, that if there was an emergency that required more than $500, they would have to take a loan for that. I'm not sure you realize, right? But that puts you, your family, your ministries, your church in a very fragile situation. 
Therefore, your plan to save could be something as simple as thinking, you know what, I would love to have enough three months of expenses as a sort of emergency fund. And so I'm going to spend the next two years saving for that. For some people, you're like, well, that's taking a very long time. Hey, but at least there's a plan, right? Um, Planning is better than nothing at all. Uh, but there are other plans available, and each of these will be tailored to your personal circumstances, right? For example, if you have debt, you need to worry about that differently than people who don't. But the principle is this. Putting money aside for the future is wise, even from a very young age. So I want to encourage parents to teach this to your kids, to cultivate really healthy habits from a young age. Remember, the way we look at money, the way we spend money is like a muscle, right? Growing that from a very young age is going to set them up well. It takes you out of a place of financial vulnerability and into a place of financial dependability where you are now actually in a space where you can serve others and be of help to others. So church, have a plan. Second of all, one of the keys to saving is actually to prune cutting out unnecessary things in your life. The biblical heart of this is Hebrews 13 verse 5, to be content with what you have. There are two areas of pruning. The first is what you spend. So saving isn't just taking money and putting it away. Saving can also look at your current spending habits right now and ask, do I really need this? Or is this kind of silly, right? So it's not just looking at items, but looking at the amount that you're expending. So for example, like, do I really need this mobile plan? Do I really need this upgrade? Do I really need this? Asking some very fundamental questions. Because the truth is, often we overspend because of discontentment. But if scriptures is right, then perhaps it's right to prune what you spend on. The second area is where you spend. And this is just kind of common wisdom, right? For example, we all know that the servo or 7-Eleven generally costs more for things, right? Like a can of Coke is three times the price. Now, they're not trying to rob you. They charge a premium because what they're offering is not just a product, but also convenience, okay? But that knowledge also means you are now in a position to decide if you want to pay for that convenience. Sometimes it's worth paying. Sometimes it's not. So as you think about your savings, maybe it's worth just going through your bank statements, your receipts, and your habits and asking, are there things that I can prune? Because there's a chance you could redirect a lot of these categories to other categories of financial stewardship, savings being one of them. But you know what? This could mean that your ability to serve and give is amplified. Wouldn't that be amazing? Next, I want to encourage us to be very purposeful about our savings. And this comes into the realm of investments. Deploying your capital to generate a positive financial return. Who knew we'd be talking about investments at church, right? Now, I know that different people have different responses to investments. I'm not going to tell you whether you should. I am definitely not going to give you investment advice. But I want to say the Bible does speak about investments, and it praises wise investments. For example, Matthew 25, verses 14 to 18. Matthew 25, 14 to 18 speaks of a master who entrusts his wealth to his servants. Remember, one is given five bags of gold, two bags of gold, and then one bag of gold, right? Now, it's really important to emphasize this parable here is about the kingdom of God. 
It's about what being faithful to God looks like. But I want you to notice that faithfulness in this passage looks really interesting. For the one entrusted with five bags of gold and two bags of gold, faithfulness looks like doubling those bags of gold. And with the one with one bag of gold, unfaithfulness looks like doing nothing with it. The simple point is this. The Bible celebrates wise investments. So for your money to make money for you is not necessarily succumbing to greed or capitalism. Making wise investment choices and making a return is a really good way to save for future purposes. But as you think about investments, let me encourage you to be really careful about what you're investing in. Are the companies and stocks you're investing in causing harm? Is it destroying the environment? Is it unethical? Christians, it is better to get a lesser rate of return than to participate in evil. Remember that. All that being said, the Bible is also really sober about investments. Ecclesiastes 11 verse 2 says this, Invest in seven ventures, yes, in eight, you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. The teacher in Ecclesiastes is saying, hey, listen, life is uncertain. The most important thing you can do is live a life of faith. Trust in God. That's the most important thing you can do. That's the epitome of wisdom. But the teacher also says, in this world, let the reality of uncertainty guide your investment strategy. He's saying here, in very simple words, diversify. If you put all of your eggs in one basket and if you lose that one basket, you lose it all. But put it in seven or eight, then you are living in congruence with reality that life can be uncertain. So for us, the application is this. Be careful with your investments. Do not take risks you cannot afford. Do not let greed drive your investment. Do not think you can outsmart the market. Do not invest money you do not have but you can be purposeful. If you have savings that you can put aside for investment, do your research, speak to someone you trust, maybe a financial advisor, talk to someone who knows what they're doing and has a proven track record. Not just some uncle who believes he can beat the market, right? Find someone you trust and has a proven track record. Be really careful of get-quick-rich schemes. Those are rarely, if ever, real. And even if they are, remember, money that comes quickly goes just as quickly. But as you think about savings, then here are some points to ponder for you, okay? What is your current savings strategy? Where did you learn that from? And how has that served you? And I want to encourage us in this church during morning tea to speak to someone in a very different age category than you. So if you're young, go up to an older person. If you're an older person, go to a younger person. I want, I'm, I'm just curious. I have a feeling that the answer is going to be so rich and diverse and interesting. It's going to be great, right? Number two, if you don't have a saving strategy, what do you think will be a helpful way forward? What's a realistic and attainable goal you can set? What are some things you can prune? Who is someone you can speak with who could guide you? Church, actually, um, we have... Lots of wise stewards here at Grace Point who manage their resources very, very well. Uh, if you're someone who's struggling with this, you'd like to be connected with someone who could just gently guide you along, come and let me know. I'll be happy to connect you with some people. Saving. 
Next, the poverty gospel will have us believe it is right to give everything away, right? And in fact, unless you're doing that, then what are you really doing? But the Bible actually teaches it is right and appropriate to spend. And by spending, I mean using our money to live, uh, to pay the bills, to raise our families, to eat, to get educated, to pay for petrol, which is very expensive right now, or even just simple things in life, right? We don't have to give all of our money away and then pray that food will fall from the sky. 1 Timothy 5, verse 3 to 10 tells us, it is right for the head of the house to provide for his family and relatives, to put food on the table, clothes on your back, books on tables, roofs over your heads. But can I just expand on spending for just a moment, right? Because you see, it is not uncommon for us today in our modern society to spend money based on the categories of what is cheap, convenient, and cool. We buy the cheapest things in the most convenient way, especially if it's cool, if people approve of it. I want to give us some additional or alternative categories. Are you ready? Firstly, I want to encourage us to be really thoughtful about spending on necessities. I alluded to this before, right? But on needs. Now, next week, we're going to talk about spending on enjoyment, right? That's, that's right. That's biblical. You don't have to punish yourself. You just came out from a holiday, right? It's fine. But I also want to say that when it comes to day-to-day living, focus on necessities. I want to remind us that more things does not mean more joy, right? More things does not mean more joy. So sometimes just taking the time to think, do I need this will make us wiser. Maybe it's good to set some parameters, right? So my dad used to have this rule in our home. It's very interesting. He says, if something costs more than $150, only make a decision to buy it after 24 hours, right? Now, granted, 150 was a lot more back then than today, right? You buy a milk tea and it's 150 bucks today, right? But, but what he was doing back then was he was protecting me from impulse buying things. Actually, since I was young back then and had no money, I think he was protecting himself from me impulse buying things, right? But it doesn't have to be $150. You can set up parameters for yourself, but simple principles like these can help. And parents, I just want to encourage you guys to teach this to your kids, right? Again, it's super common for, you know, to just to, here's a credit card and here's some cash. And they, they lose the sense of the value of money and they lose the sense of value of hard work and contribution and impact. Very simple things like this can help us go, wow, like this is not easy. I mean, we know this, right? I remember my, my sister first got her part-time job, right? And everyone feels this, right? You know what I'm talking about, right? So, so back then, she would just spend my dad's money like whatever. Again, youngest child, all the benefits I didn't have. I'm not bitter, right? But so she just... just <laughs> I need a therapist. <laughs> so so she just, just spent my dad's money, no dramas, right? And then when she started working, she started saying this, oh, that's two hours of work. I'm like, yeah, it is, yeah. And then she'll say, I'll just use dad's credit card, right? <laughs> terrible anyway no but 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 don't you see right simple parameters like these can help them go wow like money doesn't grow on trees that if you do good work and hard work you get rewarded for that and part of tasting the fruits of your reward is being able to spend that on yourself and to love others don't you see how powerful that can be philippians 4 verse 19 speaks of god providing for our needs So since our joy is in God and since our needs are supplied, then perhaps our spending ought to be focused on what's necessary. 
Second of all, I want us to uh, spend um, a bit of time thinking about spending with an eye for longevity. Now, this here is a really modern problem, right? But you can agree that we live in a world of fast fashion and built-in redundancies. There are certain brands of clothing that are stylish and mass-produced and intentionally designed to not last. And let's be honest, these fast fashion brands make a killing because they feed on our discontentment. We want more, we want now, we want variety, and we want cheap. That's their market. That's their niche. But if godliness with contentment is great gain, then maybe it's okay to wear the same thing for a long time. And if it's going to be for a long time, then maybe it would be wiser to prioritize quality over quantity. So sometimes something may double the cost, but perhaps it's worth it if it's double or sometimes triple the lifespan. In a I-want-it-now world, why spending takes longevity into consideration? Same with technology, right? It's been proven, right? And no one's even hiding it, that your phones, your laptops, or tablets are designed to slow down. That's why my sermons are long, because my device is slowing down. I'm reading slower, right? They're designed to slow down. Sometimes they stop functioning, like what happened today, after a period of time. It's designed that way, to get you to spend more. Longevity means resisting the urge to upgrade when the flashiest and newest thing is released. Longevity may also mean, you know what? Sometimes paying a little more to future-proof yourself so you're not having to upgrade all the time. Maybe it means getting a slightly better processor so that it's still functional after three years. It may cost you more upfront, but perhaps that's what you save for. Have an eye for longevity. Lastly, Sustainability. Mark 12, 30 to 31 tells us, one of the two greatest commandments is to love your neighbor as yourself. The other and the most important one is to love God. So as we think about loving our neighbors, let me ask you a question. Is your spending sustainable? I want to encourage you to spend your money on things and in companies that care. That care for their workers, that care for the environment, that care for causes, that care about longevity, they care about user experience, they care about the materials that they use. You know, to put your money into companies that use slave labor, that destroy the planet, only to get you six to 12 months of usage is not loving your neighbor. And so you see, every dollar you have is actually a vote of confidence. I want to empower you, it's not just a coin. It's a vote of confidence. Every dollar you spend on companies that are not sustainable is voting in confidence of their practice. Likewise, every dollar you choose not to spend on these companies is a voice of protest against their practices. Church, I hope you see, using our money in this way is actually profoundly prophetic. It's showing that we believe there is a better way. We spend sustainably because we're called to love our neighbor, especially um, those who are most easily overlooked. But sustainability is also caring for people who are most easily overlooked, like small businesses. You know, Christians don't need to be against big companies, right? Sometimes you can feel like, wow, we're against those big companies. No, the business model often brings savings and options to lots of people. Many people benefit from it, so that's really good, right? But remember, every purchase you make is adding value to someone. 
Every purchase you make is adding value to someone. So if you buy an apple from Coles or Woolies, you're adding value to the company, to the shareholders. Nothing wrong with that, right? These supermarkets are providing you with value. You pay for it. That's fine. But let me encourage you to consider your local fruit store. They may cost a little more. Maybe that's why you avoid it, right? But when you buy an apple from them, you are adding value to their business, but you're also adding value to their families. And I say this because I know what it's like to live under the pressure of rising interest rates, right? All of you got emails this week about rising interest rates. So every cent you save is precious. But let's also remember the owner of the corner store has the same rising interest rates. They're your neighbor. They're seeking to add value to your life. So if you are in a position to do so, not everyone can, but if you are in a position to do so, let me encourage you as an act of Christian love to buy from them, to consider them. So as we think about spending, then here are two points to ponder as we finish up. Number one, what factors do you usually consider before spending your money? How do you decide what to buy, where to shop, how much to spend? What goes through your mind? I have a feeling that all of us do this intuitively, but just bringing it to the service may help us to go, wow, like that's actually very helpful or not very helpful. That's a good question to reflect on this week. Number two, do the categories of necessity, longevity, and sustainability typically cross your mind? Why or why not? My hope and prayer is that we see that love for God and love for neighbor moves us to what's spending in a way that considers these categories. Church, God's blessing cannot be bought. They are all a gift of grace. So since we do not need to give everything away to earn God's favor, we can actually be wise in saving and spending. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for your word to us today. We ask now, dear Lord, that uh, you would allow us to reflect deeply, uh, that you would cause us to see our blind spots, and that the gospel and the commandments of love will move us towards greater wisdom. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.